Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, hey. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Program. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I am in Los Angeles. I hope you're okay out there, wherever you happen to be. I have a great show for you today. Vesna Marich is my guest. She has a debut novel out on Sandorf Passage. It is called The President Shop. Sandorf Passage, uh, in case you're not aware of it, publishes work that is born from displacement and movement. Its mission is to uh, help articulate what it means to live in a globalized world, and it is home to writing that is inspired by conflict zones and the dangers of human complacency. So Vesna Marich is originally from Mostar, a city in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and uh, her debut memoir, Bluebird, was published back in 2009 to critical acclaim. It was longlisted for the Orwell Prize, and uh, Vesna is, you know, she left Bosnia and Herzegovina at the age of 16, which you're going to hear us talk about in just a bit. She left the country of her birth on a convoy of refugees that was headed for the Lake District in England, where she would go on to spend the next several years of her life getting her education. She studied at University College in London and later worked for the BBC World Service. In addition to publishing uh, her own books, she also writes uh, Lonely Planet Travel Guides and works as a literary translator and a freelance journalist. And when we talked uh, just a few days ago, she was at home in Madrid, where she currently lives. And uh, I really loved her book, and I loved meeting her. The President Shop, it's a hard book to describe. I struggle to, to capture it in, in just a few words. It reads like a kind of fable about what it's like to grow up, you know, what it was like to grow up in uh, in Eastern Europe under the rule of Tito. But more, it's it's broader than that. It's about cult of personality. It's about authoritarian rule when power is really concentrated in the state, and in, in particular in the hands of one person or one man. And I found it unnerv unnervingly resonant with my own experience as an American, particularly in the wake of the past four years. 
And we talk about, you know, Vesna and I talked about that as well. And you're going to hear us, uh, you know, ponder the, the ways in which the world has changed and how, you know, the sort of thing that just happened in the United States could happen anywhere. And the sort of thing that happened in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 90s could happen anywhere. And the truth of that, I think, feels maybe more immediate than it used to. Certainly here uh, at home in the States, but I think also globally. I think a lot of us are feeling the fragility of Western democracy, if we're you know lucky enough to live in a democracy. But um, I don't know. It just feels like a well-timed book in that way, like a book that very much speaks to the situation that we're in. Um, not just as one particular nation or nationality, but just as a species. <laughs> um, and it also, it's also just a, a lovely book with like really vivid characters and it's a great family saga. So I, I really enjoyed it and I loved meeting Vesna and I'm going to get to that conversation right now. Here she is, folks. This is Vesna Marich and her debut novel, One More Time, is called The President Shop. So I'm originally from Bosnia, or I was born in Yugoslavia, which of course doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then I emigrated to the UK in 1992 at the start of the of the war in Bosnia. Um, and I spent 22 years living in the UK fully. Um, and then I lived in back in Bosnia for three years. Um, uh, before coming to Madrid. And and as I said, I kind of have moved between um, Madrid and London quite a lot. But uh, since the lockdown and the coronavirus and all this started, it's been quite Madrid-y, Madrid-heavy in my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the beginning of the war, uh, 1992, that's... I guess that's the, a good time to get out, right? Before everything gets super chaotic. It's better than being there in the midst of all the, the chaos. But can you just talk a little bit about that process, like getting out, immigrating to the UK, circumstances on the ground? How old were you? Um, so I just turned 16 um, when I left. So it was pr- pretty, it was October 1992 and the war started in April. So um you know the war was kind of going on quite heavily uh, at the time and um we were offered a trip well to to leave on a convoy of women and children my sister and i um um to the uk so there were lots of different voluntary organizations from different countries in, in western europe mostly uh offering to take people out of bosnia at the time and this was one of them and it was a, a, a local uh, volunteer group from the north of England who came to Croatia with two coaches, you know, big buses, and um, and basically picked up all of us. So uh, I left with my with my sister originally for six months. That was the plan. That wasn't sort of a plan. The plan wasn't to leave forever. Uh, but of course, as time went on and the war got worse and worse. Um, I ended up staying. Um, my sister went back and then came back to England again. So it was all kind of, it was quite chaotic. But yeah, I ended up staying in the UK and just sort of making my life there. Where were your parents? Uh, my mother stayed uh, in Bosnia. She came and spent uh, about less than a year 
in England. Uh, my father was, uh, he, he was in Bosnia, Houston. I mean, it wasn't possible for men um, between uh, the ages of 18 and 60, I think, to leave the country because they were army, uh, they were, you know, the, were kind of, the, they had to basically, they, it was illegal for them to leave the country. They had to be um, ready to serve the army. That's what I want to say. Um, and plus, my father was incredibly patriotic, patriotic towards uh, uh, his hometown, our hometown, which I think I kind of um, put a little bit into the president shop, this huge love um, that is felt towards one's kind of hometown more than the country itself, but just the hometown. So he wouldn't have wanted to um, to leave anyway. And my mother, I, I think like a lot of people at the time thought, you know, if I get my kids out for, for a while until things get better um, and sort of try and take care of, of everything, you know, that she'd had back there. Um, it was, that was the sort of thinking, you know, I never even questioned her decision not to come along with us um, until my first book Bluebird came out in the UK. And, um, and it was on BBC Radio uh, broadcast as, as Book of the Week. And so parts of it were read every day. And people then commented on the BBC website and said, uh, where was your mother? What kind of a mother lets her like 16-year-old daughter go? And I thought, oh, I've never even thought about it. It just seemed so natural at the time that people just did whatever they thought was best at that moment. Um, so my mother came over uh, to England for a year. And then my father died in that in that uh, time, so she had to go back and like, basically save uh, the flat that um, uh, we'd lived in all our lives. Because at that time, if any, if any flat was empty, uh, people would just move in and occupy. And it was a kind of wasn't really like a squatting thing, but it kind of was. <laughs> um, so it was a really chaotic time. So it was. Uh, difficult to know what the best thing to do was um how did you how did, how did your father die did he die in the war no he was a very heavy alcoholic and he died of a brain hemorrhage because um, his drinking just got so bad during the war i think it's just you know with, uh, just nothing else to do i imagine um it's like drinking during the pandemic <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well apparently it's true because uh you know a lot of uh, uh helplines that people used to call to stop drinking have apparently now completely um, dried, well, dried up. That's a pun. I don't mean to do that. <laughs> but, yeah. So did you, when you were a kid in Bosnia growing up, and what was the hometown? Did you mention it already? My hometown is uh, Mostar. It has um, a very old Ottoman bridge. I don't know if you've ever heard of it i've seen this bridge um, it's kind of like an arched bridge is that yes yeah okay so i've seen i've seen that in pictures i didn't have it completely locked down in my head that that was mustad but hmm. and you said too that your father had a strong allegiance to that town like it was more the town than the country so um during yugoslavia it was uh you know people were very connected to the to the state, to the country, to this ideal of the country, but Mostar in particular, I think, is is uh, famous for the for the fact that the local people love it so much. There's this huge local pride, or or was I don't know now when this is so much the case, but it was uh, it was very much loved for its you know the, the men dive off the bridge. There's still a, an international competition every summer. Uh, there's a lot of sort of local mythology that. Um, the older generation is really kept alive. So, 
They dive off the bridge? They dive off the bridge. The bridge is, I think, about, can it be 20 meters high? I'll check this. Um, but yes, it's a huge sort of macho feat, you know, that young. Uh, so, for example, my father started diving off the bridge, I think, before he was 15. So they start, because the, the river is, is very deep. It's in a canyon, um, and it's a fast, very cold river. So this is like, you know, diving off such a high bridge into this super cold river very fast is like if you if you can do that you're a real man and uh and young boys you know they start uh and so i, I you know in the president shop there's this reverence uh for the river for this life there you know and all these different mysteries that it holds and that comes from like real life relationship to this uh, natural environment but uh young boys start diving off the cliffs around so they start from a smaller height and then they build up until they can dive off the bridge and it's still a big sort of measure of your masculinity if you can do this i would fail that test i would never be I, there's no way i'm diving off a 60 <laughs> foot bridge <laughs> i don't think there's any need for it but you know i guess if you grow up in this kind of uh local tradition maybe maybe you'd feel tempted i don't know did you ever do it me no god no okay good no. so we have that <laughs> we're both we're both cowards i knew i liked you <laughs> Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, so you're, you're, what, 15, 16 years old when you are put on this bus and driven mm. to England. I'm imagining that was your first time in England. You had never been yes. there. I've never been there before. And you didn't, and I guess with the war as the backdrop, leaving the country made some sense. Uh, but to be that age and to suddenly leave everything you know and to move away from your parents has got to be a little bit difficult. Like, was that hard for you? Uh, yeah, it was hard. I mean, um, one of the things about leaving uh, at that age, so there's like, it's like, it's a kind of twofold thing. Um, one, you're a teenager, so you kind of think you know more than you do, uh, which can either lead you into, well, it can both lead you into trouble and it can be quite a protective attitude, you know, that kind of confidence that makes you achieve stuff that you may not be if you start asking yourself lots of questions. And the other thing was that once I got to England, we were uh, sent to school, uh, to an English school um, straight away. And everyone being the same age and everyone being into the same things like, you know, music, smoking, whatever, drinking, that's kind of what you want to do. Um, 
it was very easy to make friends and then you adapt much more quickly. So those were sort of the positives, let's call it. Uh, but then on the other hand, you're really still a child. You know, now when I see 16-year-olds and I think, oh, that was me, you know, you, you, I didn't know anything. I didn't know, you know, really anything about anything in terms of practical life or... And, you know, England was about as far as... as different as you can get from uh, Yugoslavia, you know, from Southern Europe to Northern Europe. It's a huge cultural difference. Um, How so? Well... You know, the climate obviously is like the first thing that everyone would, but uh, but more than that, uh, it's just the sort of uh, cultural norms, um, uh, the formality, for example, that exists in the UK just does not uh, have the same kind of um, weight in in uh, southern European societies. Um, I came from a communist country to one of the most capitalist countries in the world. And so that was a huge shock for me, yet I didn't know what it was that was shocking. You know, I wasn't aware at all of what um, what, it, what socialism meant, what capitalism, you know, I didn't really, even though I'd grown up in it, it wasn't really something that I was massively aware of. So I didn't realize that schools uh, were different. Uh, back in Yugoslavia, all the schools were more or less the same. There was no private education. Everything was state-owned. So you just went to your local school. There, there was very little class difference. Um, and then when I went to England, you know, everybody was sort of talking about what kinds of schools you could go to, what was a better school. What was a, I had, you know, my main criteria, my only criterion for choosing my secondary school was that I didn't have to wear a uniform. This was it. <laughs> so I went to several different schools and I experienced such a different uh, range of the quality of education and of the people that went to school with me it was actually was probably a good thing because i got a good insight into what it means to live in this like class society and how education is affected by that um yeah because i want to and i want to interrupt you like on a per, on mm -hmm. a personal note but when you said that there's no such thing or there was no such thing as private education in bosnia where you you know grew up and were born mm. That's something that I've like, that's an idea that I've thrown around. Like, I feel like this, this class-based education system that we have in the States and that exists in England and other places is screwed up uh, because it, it, you know, it gives quite an advantage to people who, for example, can afford expensive private schools. Sure. Um, and so if you just eliminated private school as an option, which I think is the case in, a, in Finland, and they have the best education system in the world. Yeah. It seems like suddenly you would have all these rich people who would be magically incentivized to make the public school system great. Um, mm. Do you like, but is there a flaw in that logic? Like, is it, is a capitalist school environment where these schools compete against one another and the market decides like having been through both systems, do you see one as being more effective than the other? Um, I would certainly say that I'm all for uh, non-private education. I mean, I personally would eliminate it myself. I don't think there's any justice in that at all. Um, and I, do, I don't think uh, equality in that way would result in anything worse. Uh, people in uh, across the well, the Eastern European, the former Eastern European. Um, block or whatever Yugoslavia wasn't part of that block but you know uh, I'm known for the good education I think um, one thing that I did like much more about uh, British education 
even though I didn't go to any like fancy schools at all. I have to say like the schools I went to were really kind of lower down on, the, on these ranks. Uh, but was the fact that uh, there was a lot less sort of authoritarianism uh, than, than we had in this old system, you know, which I think is found across continental Europe. Um, and I see it here in Spain. My daughter goes to school here and I see that they uh, still have a very similar education system to what we had in the 80s in terms of how classrooms are, are set up and, uh, you know, everyone kind of looking up at the teacher. So that kind of thing didn't really exist in England so much, uh, at least on the level that I went to school there. And and uh, critical thinking is much more uh, developed and encouraged. So those things are, you know, I think if you take both uh, things out of both, uh, you can make a good system, but I don't think it needs to be private at all to be good. I think, if anything, it sucks out the money from the from the public, uh, you know, from the state uh, education system that could benefit uh, everybody. <clears throat> Did you speak English when you got to England? Like, were you fluent at, when you hit the ground? No, fluent, no. I mean, I spoke English enough to be able to start school, and um, and I. Yeah, I mean, I spoke enough to, to do all that. But I remember just in the nine, in the first nine months, which is how long it took me to complete the school year, it was like, you know, I was completely fluent um, by the end of it. It was so good to be so young, I think. I was going to say, when your brain is all spongy and you can pick things yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Now it's like, take you <laughs> twice as long or three times as long to, to get to yeah. being proficient. Um, yeah. So, okay, that's, it's good that we, I think we, we needed to set some kind of foundation before we begin talking about your book because it, f it figures in. I have not read Bluebird um, mm -hmm. yet, but is that about, about the, the transition to England? You sort of alluded to it earlier. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's right. It's about uh, the bus journey to England, which was a four-day bus journey and was a very surreal experience for me. Um, kind of very surreal humor at many on many occasions which you might not expect but it was really kind of it was quite quite bizarre uh, that trip and the first four years uh in the uk until i got my refugee status so that's basically what bluebird uh covers and it, and it moves uh between the experience of what it means to become a refugee um and also uh it's just sort of yeah it's 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 uh it's about my time in england and then also what was happening in bosnia I mean, you'd think that you're you're uh, you're helping a bunch of kids flee a war. You could get them a plane ticket. You're putting them on a bus for four days. Like, why can't England just fly you over? Or was there some sort of sort of uh, like military reason? I actually don't know. I've never thought about that. Why didn't they fly? I think because it was pe like local people uh, putting money together, like volunteering to get us out. It was much, probably much cheaper to get seventy-five people on two buses. Oh, than oh. to get 75 airplane tickets, I guess. I Especially at that time, there were no cheap airlines. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, no, I thought it was England that did it. It was it was actually people on the no, ground. No, it was local people on the ground. Yeah, it was like a community, I think. Got it, got it. Okay. So, you, you know, you say you got refugee status in England. Um, I'm wondering at the age of 16 or 15, whatever it was, if you had a sense of yourself like I, I guess like the question that i'm driving at has to do with uh being a refugee and then how one identifies oneself in one's own uh one's own mind especially at the age of 16 like did you think of yourself like oh i'm a refugee 
fleeing a war-torn country? Um, or were you just like, you know what, things are kind of bad at home. I'm going to go to boarding school, essentially. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like how deeply internalized, yeah. how deeply internalized was that um, as part of your identity and reality at that age? Yeah, so this is uh, a lot what I wrote about in Bluebird, this, this very duality of perception. Um, of course, for me, it was uh, we're leaving a war zone and getting out for a while until things get better and then I'll go home and carry on with my life. And then, of course, once you start crossing different borders, you know, and the perception of you changes in the eyes of whoever is perceiving you. So that is suddenly a very strange um, experience to go through. So, you know, first of all, you enter the immigration office and you're an asylum seeker, which took four years until I became a refugee. You know, there's these all these different um, uh, bureaucratic sort of uh, statuses that you can have to go different levels up up towards possible citizenship eventually. Um, but so that was one layer of being seen as a refugee. And we didn't really know what that meant, you know, until um, until we were sort of faced with um, all kinds of prejudices that go with, um, with the word refugee. And there are many, right? So... Um, some thought that, you know, we were not sort of miserable looking enough to be refugees. Some thought that we were sort of, we were from some totally wild place. You know, I mean, you kind of got uh, lots and lots and lots of different types of prejudices that uh, I'm not saying that people in Yugoslavia don't have these prejudices themselves about other people who are ref refugees. But when you're on the receiving end, you suddenly sort of think, oh, God, that doesn't feel great, right? Right. <laughs> so, um but for me, as a 16-year-old, I didn't really have these prejudices. I didn't know what any of that meant. Uh, and um, but I guess for the for the women who had uh, come along, who were in their 40s, let's say, you know, they already had quite a formed uh, personality, so they must have experienced very different things from me. Um, and then there was the whole business of us being from what was known as Eastern Europe, which is certainly not, or again, how we uh, perceived ourselves. We always saw ourselves much more as the people from the Balkans, which has a whole different sort of cultural, historical um, value. Uh, so, yes, it, there were there were a lot of different perceptions being thrown on you. It's almost like, you know, you end up like a Christmas tree with all these different uh, different things that are hanging off you. And, uh, you know, um, you just have to sort of keep track of everything or not. And did you, I, I, I meant to ask, uh, ask this earlier, but I'll, I'll ask it now. Did you see any, uh, did you witness any uh, of the war at close range before you, you left country? Yeah, I did. Uh, not as, you know, not the huge, long, uh, protracted periods of time, but I, I was there for the first, I think, month uh, before we left. Um, and then later on, I went back before going to England uh, to say goodbye to my father and um, collect some things or whatever, but yeah, yeah, I did see some. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't um, obviously compared to some people, but it was it enough. Wasn't. It was enough. <laughs> that's for all sure, you, yeah. That's all you need to see. Yes. Uh, and then when you were in England, why? Well, this is probably derived from me watching movies and television over the years <laughs> that are set at English boarding schools. Um, but I, you were boarding at a school, or were you boarding with some sort of host mm. family? No, so uh, I um, I was uh, living with a Bosnian uh, co 
co-refugee. Uh, we were living together in a house that was sort of attached to uh, an English woman's house. And then after that, I rebelled and I wanted to live on my own. And then I had a, a strange experience. All this is in Bluebird, so <laughs> I'm kind of telling you the book. Um, and then after that, I lived with a, an English vicar's family. But all this time, I went to a local school. I never boarded. No, no, no. That's. Um, and then after that, so I moved from the north to the south of England then to north again, all different sort of reasons, um, until I went to university. But I just went to local schools that were just... Like English public mm -hmm. schools? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. And we're... There must have been people who were kind because like I was imagining you at a boarding school and like it's really like entrenched classism and like these really mean kids. And you know what I'm saying? Like I was I was envisioning you in that sort of environment. But um, I imagine there was some of that, you know, there's probably always going to be some of that in any kind of high school. But especially when you're coming in from afar, um, there must also have been people who were kind to you along the way, or at least I hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah, most people were very kind. I can't, you know, at school, I, I don't remember any very bad experiences at all, especially not, um, no, I mean, you know, there were people who were just sort of mm, not very nice people in general. But, but it, you know, I think either it was my sort of optimistic state of mind, but in general, uh, you know, it can be much worse, I'm sure, if you are... Uh, a foreigner or an asylum seeker. The 90s, the early 90s, were a very different time uh, in terms of uh, emigrating than what we have today. I really would hate to be a migrant uh, today. I think the general attitude has changed so much. It's like a, you know, it's like a dirty word to be a, an immigrant or a refugee. Never mind what you're coming from. I mean, you know it yourself, right? Uh, being in the US, it's it's. Something's happened to humanity that, that has just, uh, it's quite shocking. I mean, if you imagine that now in Bosnia, there are, so the root of the, the, the you know, illegal so-called migrants, who a lot of whom end up in Lesbos, uh, in Greece, um, and, uh, and a lot of them want to get into the EU, have to cross the former Yugoslavia. And because it's the sort of frontier with the European Union, and Bosnia borders Croatia, which is the first country in that on that sort of level to be a member of the EU. And Bosnia is full of these migrants who are sleeping in the streets, uh, who are basically very poorly handled because Bosnia is so poor that it doesn't really have a system that can do anything for these people. But it's it's absolutely shocking uh, what's happening now. So back in the early nineties, um, there was just not this atmosphere of um, of such strong hatred and such strong rejection of people in need. And because we were a small group as well, I think it's sort of, um, I think, you know, especially the first place we went to in the Lake District in the north of England, I think the local population was really curious about us and they'd seen a lot of this suffering uh, on TV. And of course, it was the first European conflict since World War Two, which makes it a lot more sympathetic for Western Europeans. There was, I don't know, it was, yeah, it was a different time, but there were kind people. I, I can definitely say that. I, you know. And you were in the Lake yeah. District? Yes. That's beautiful the up there. I, uh, it's I, beautiful. I used to have a border collie. It's mm -hmm. like my beloved dog when I was in my 20s. And uh, 
I that's the region that the border collies originate from up there. Mm, and mm-hmm. did you ever see did you ever see that like were, were there sheepdog all around when you were up there? In fact the the Vickers family had a border collie. Ugh. The Iron Yes and it was a very lovely dog. But yeah. It's a beautiful part. Have you ever been? No. I gotta go. Oh, I've been to England but I, I haven't been to uh the Lake District and it's easy for me to like fantasize about like somehow living there and having multiple border collies. I have... It's an absolutely beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, that's a good spot to land. Mm. And yes, you... it was really great. And when you say vicar, that vicar is a isn't that a Catholic priest or am I or is that a, like a government Protestant? Protestant, okay. Protestant priest uh, who can marry and uh, indeed did and had a family, so I lived with them. Oh, okay, okay. Mm. Um, well, all of this sets us up to talk about the president shop, which, you know, I think had you published it five years ago would not have nearly as much resonance for me as an American reader as it does now. Um, the book is shockingly in some ways resonant, um, as an American citizen after what we've just been through, uh, over the past, you know, four years, especially with, uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I recognized a lot of um, my own country in the descriptions you um, made of the nameless country in the mm-hmm. book. Like you made some creative decisions about how to depict um, the world of your story. Can you talk about that? Like instead of getting specific, you kind of created this uh, fictional universe that could almost be any well, I mean, not not any place, but um, it's it felt like a very deliberate decision to not name it. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I really didn't want to name it, although it's it's very closely based on Yugoslavia, on the socialist federal so socialist federal republic of Yugoslavia, um, and the reason not to name it is because. A, I didn't want to burden it with the history of the place, uh, of the, with the actual history, and you know the, the the whole the last thirty years of the of the regional history in particular, and and also I could then play with um, with anything I wanted. Historical details could then just be kind of developed and taken wherever I felt like it. So it's a real liberation not to kind of work in that constant context of like historical fiction um, although it is in many instances based on on real um real life events and real details yeah it made me think a lot like the book you know just to kind of quickly encapsulate it for people listening is about a family um and the family i don't does the family have a last name i don't even think is there a last it name? has it's my my son oh that's right it's merrick <laughs> that's right that's right um but there's uh there's you know the parents the daughter there's the uncle, uh, and then there's the great uncle. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. And you know, so it's a it's a domestic story, but it's set against the backdrop of this country that is closely, you know, closely resembles, uh, as you said, Yugoslavia mm-hmm. uh, from back in the day. And the president shop is uh, like exactly what what it says it is. It's a shop devoted to the president of the nation who is held up as a kind of uh, like godlike figure in their household, in particular by the father, who is a military guy and a big patriot. And 
you know, I'm seeing this right now. Like I was just this morning, I was like scanning the internet and there was a photo from uh, this political, this right-wing political conference in the United States that took place last week that was really disturbing. Like it was parading, uh, you know, it was parading around uh, like Nazi iconography and its stage design. I don't know if you saw this. No. Uh, but, you know, like things on the right wing of our political spectrum are getting dangerously overt in there. <laughs> in their mm-hmm. signaling and in their language. And then on top of that, there was, I think it was at this conference, there was a gold, like a really garish and like kind of obnoxious gold statue of oh. Trump. Like, oh, wow. Kind of cartoonish. But, you know, Trump, like the, like he's all about the gold in his private residence, you know, in New York. Is, yeah. Like really, like just like ultra tacky. And this this uh, statue was sort of made out of Trump gold. You know what I'm saying? That kind of same sheen. But it was like wearing mm-hmm. flip-flops like on his feet. It was really just disturbing. And yet there was a photo taken of a, of a Trump supporter who was like down on one knee uh, looking up at it. Like kind of like in a um, – like a, a gesture of devotion. You know what I'm saying? Like a – wow. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how does this happen? How does one person become like this unifying figure that so many people kind of like, they just kind of check their brains out and they just devote themselves to and they imbue with so much meaning. I mean, your book isn't, I don't know if the president is quite as, uh, you know, gross as Donald Trump, but it's the same sort of thing. You know, it's the same kind of culture of worship around this uh, strongman leader. Mm. Well, we do like a leader as a, as, as a human species. Um, we love that, to surrender our, our will and our, our intelligence to another. Let me just guide me, uh, whether it's a small guru type thing or a, or a president or, a, you know, the Pope or whoever, you know, I think it's like a, just a thing we love to do. Um, so the president, of course, so, so I'll tell you, what really made me want to write this book is uh, when I went back to live in Bosnia for for three years um, between uh, 2013 and 2016. Uh, is, so that was 21 years after I'd left and I, it was a very different place to come back to. And a lot of uh, my family members, especially my uncle, who is now, I think, about 80, must be about 80, he... Um, still absolutely loves uh, President Tito, who has been dead for a long time now. And um, he lived during Yugoslavia where there was this uh, social order that was really, you know, he benefited from a huge amount. And I think most people in Yugoslavia benefited from this kind of progressive uh, improvement of the country on many levels. And and it was really sad to see that these people were now completely lost. They didn't really belong anywhere anymore. And they every time they came over to visit us, um, they would just end up talking about the old ways, how things were, you know. And so Tito was like this this figure of you know of worship in a weird in a weird way because it wasn't really Tito that they talked about, but it was just this good life that they had, and. Um, and I thought about this kind of completely lost world that um, cannot be 
found anymore in in uh, in that part of the world. You can't find this place anymore. It's just in your memory, and everyone has a different memory of it. And the the fact that this memory is so disputed on so many different levels. So some people say it wasn't a paradise; it was absolute hell. Other people say, you know, it was absolutely beautiful. What are you talking about? So there is this kind of, uh, you know, and I think that partly comes with this worship in a way you, you know what you're saying is that you look at trump and you think god what an awful human being i do too but you know another person will look at him and go here's just a bit so in a way it sort of from this starts to like our perceptions are so different of the same thing that in the end uh, what what does memory tell us about this time or these places or what happened at any one time so in a way it's like you know this perennial human paradox of what we uh, what we believe and what we are guided by. Um, so that was kind of what I really wanted to discuss in the book. I hope I managed to do that too. Um, yeah. To yeah. And, you know, and I think too, like when you have a really powerful, um, you know, authoritarian or authoritarian-ish figure in government and this kind of cult of personality uh, it the the narrative of it becomes so dominant. That's something that was new to the American experience with the Trump presidency was just how much o- oxygen he consumed in our media and mm. in, and just in the minds of the population. Like I think one of the things I heard over and over again with regards to our last election was like, I just want to stop thinking about this guy. Right. I, yes, I, I yes. just need a break. I need to like stop having to wake up in the morning. And the first thing I do is like pick up my phone to read the news to figure out if something awful happened or what did he say mm. this time? And mm. I think that, uh, you know, your book speaks to that. I mean, the, this family, you know, they make their living by owning a small business called the president shop, which sells president paraphernalia. It's like, a you know, for super fans of the president, they can come get, <laughs> you know, gear. And, but I think what you do really deftly is that you, you sort of establish that, but then you start to peel apart the layers of these characters, the different family members and their personal stories. And those personal stories carry within them social and cultural uh, baggage and implications, possibilities, thwarted possibilities, uh, pressures disappointments, like all the stuff of human life that I think can sometimes get shunted to the side when so much oxygen is taken up by, say, uh, politics, conflict, um, all the stuff of power and often like powerful men, you know, who's, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. sort of eat up all the headspace and um, sometimes or oftentimes don't care about marginalized communities or you know human stuff and Mm -hmm. so i think there's that juxtaposition you know happening in your book between the two and i found that to be like very resonant like just both as an american and i think it's it's the kind of story or the kind of dichotomy that plays out all over the world Mm. i yeah i i think um what was interesting um, for me, and it's, in, and it's also interesting that you say, had I written this or had it been published four years ago, it wouldn't have been as resonant um, to the, well, let's say to a Western European audience and I, or, or readership. And I think this is quite true. And it, that's kind of what I was trying to do when I was writing Bluebird. One of the reasons, uh, f- one of the things I really wanted to put across was that um, 
the personal tragedies that come in the wake of political disasters are a, a, a human condition, not something that's, uh, you know, only uh, saved for sort of third world countries or certain other, you know, the, the, lesser, the lesser parts of humanity. So in a way, I, I think um, the last 10 years uh, of our sort of uh, recent history have shown that, uh, you know, nationalism has been rising in, in Europe, in Western Europe with Brexit, with, uh, um, you know, with Donald Trump and whatever. And I think uh, just what happened in Yugoslavia, which is where nationalism sort of just uh, imposed itself on this uh, void of values, I'd say, um, or of any real social content, um, nationalism took over. And I think that's kind of what's, what's, what's happening all over the world now. And so the, and the, with the president shop, um, this idea of this huge love of the nation and of the president, of the great leader, even though it's really heartfelt uh, uh, by um, by the father, by Ruben, who who really who he really loves and believes in the national project. So he was in the partisans, and you know a lot of those stories of him and his wife Rosa, who both fought for the partisans. Those are real life stories that I found. You know, I really kind of researched the real stories from the partisans and things. And obviously, some of them I elaborated a little bit to. Uh, to give them this sort of extra dimension. Can I ask you, was that family-like stuff, or was it just stories that you picked up from, like, doing research? Like, you know, are these are these stories that are close to you personally that you were using as models for the president shop? So elements of it are personal, uh, and other other parts are uh, from various films I've seen, from the different uh, testimonies. So we really uh, were raised... Um, with a this the president everywhere you know in our school uh, classrooms every uh, official room we all had the books of the president's um, of Tito's uh, um, life stories of his stories and so we were you know we even had a competition at school although they tell me that this is only a Bosnian thing um, of uh, uh, it was called Tito's parts of the revolution or Tito's revolutionary paths you could call it so we like had a competition of who knew more about Tito's uh, personal life details and of the different battles that took place in World War II and then if you won in your class you went on a, a higher level competition <laughs> I mean there was this incredible worship and my grandmother who was Catholic had a picture of Jesus and a picture of Tito next to it you know I mean it was like the same thing and you know when I went to um to England, and I kind of saw how, um, although it's not very overtly religious uh, society, but it's a Christian society. So you can see, in a sense, what the where the the church is, or where the you know other state symbols uh, exist. They, these spaces were really populated um, by Tito in a way that you know was clearly sort of studied and 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 worked quite well. So we grew up with this. Um, huge reverence for him and we you know if you were going to tell the ultimate truth to your friends you would swear in tito's name and only then on your mother you know like <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny that you you know it's bringing to mind i read uh the memoir uh, i think the memoir by uh, marina abramovich uh oh yes who i want to say she grew up in belgrade in belgrade okay yeah but tito mm -hmm. like her family i remember reading about tito in that book and how much devotion or at least like they had had a relationship to that government and 
Yes, her father was uh, in the military, as far as I remember. Um, I haven't read the book, but I, I know he was a very strict man. Um, yeah, no, actually, yeah, if... that's right. And he's sort of, he's kind of Rubenesque. I don't know, her mother, I remember, was like abusive and kind of awful to her. But, um, you know, what I, I think like I would want listeners to know, because I described the father, Ruben, as being kind of like a hyper patriot and a military guy. One of the things that that description might sell short is how likable of a character uh, he is. Like, he's such an earnest patriot. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. He, he's, he really he, believes. Yeah, he mm. really believes. And he's a good dad. Uh, he cares mm. about his family and loves his family quite a lot. And then mm. the uh, the Rosa character, she's like a ninja. Like, she is... Uh, <laughs> She's a badass, you know, like like uh, like roaming through the forest and tracking people down and, um, mm. you know, just a lot of native intelligence and street smarts and physical and mental toughness. She's kind of a great, yeah. a great character. I don't know if she's based on anybody in your life, but we should all be she's... lucky. We should all be lucky to know a Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> so this was um, she was a kind of. Uh, prototype slightly of um, of a lot of the stories that came again from World War Two from the partisan female partisan soldiers who fought uh, alongside men in you know just they were really super tough you know and they they worked as they worked their part equally um, and many of them formed the government later on and were national heroines and blah 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 and there was an anti-fascist movement of women so women were really kind of um, part of the whole um, struggle against fascism, as we were, as we were raised to call it. Um, but then after World War II, there was a massive national campaign to put women back into the kitchen. There, was, there were these manuals coming out, how to keep your floor perfectly clean. You know, this, it was absolutely incredible. And, you know, lately there have been a lot of, a lot of studies made to show how this shift happened from, uh, you know, women who had really, just like Rosa, you know, um, done incredible things um and were super brave and you know physically strong and you know agile um had to then become these sort of just domesticated creatures again and and i and i think you know it's sort of what happens to rosa she's she's almost like her her energy is on sort of a reserve mode uh until she has a chance to express it again yeah well i mean i think for people who live in that kind of high intensity um, like like geographically or I guess experientially like if you're a military person and you're in a theater of war and you go through combat you know it's like the movie The Hurt Locker you know the transition from military life or that kind of heightened reality mm. into uh, like a slower paced domestic experience can be really jarring <laughs> um, yeah. like I don't know if you ever can fully come back or, or like reacclimate because they're just such a different, completely different worlds uh, and realities. It's a, it's a big shift. Mm. Yes. Yes. Do you know, I guess you must've known people um, who would, you know, be fairly characterized in that fashion, like people who went through the war. Do you have family members who might have had a more intense experience of it, and then who had trouble in the aftermath um, readjusting? Um, so, so, in in I think the story like of World War Two um, fighting, and then the Bosnian War, because we had two wars, you see, 
people forget this often. <laughs> so, and then the Bosnian War, very, very different experiences. And in the Bosnian War, women did uh, fight, but it, it wasn't quite the same, especially not in the way that the stories were told. Um, in uh, So in the post-World War II Yugoslavia, you know, women were really celebrated and their achievements uh, so publicly. Um, now you don't really... That, you know, there wasn't at all a similar thing after the Bosnian War and probably for the best. But it was, um, uh, I don't know anybody personally who was like none of my family members, as far as I know, in, on the female side, were actively involved. Um, but uh, there, there, were, uh, there was a lot of mythology. We were really, you know, just like in the US, you might have been raised watching action movies by Hollywood stars. We were raised watching partisan films, you know, by the, because Yugoslavia had a huge film industry, so uh, which was dedicated to making, uh, you know, you might call them propaganda films now, but they were really uh, the films that sort of celebrated how the, the country was defended and... Um, uh, there was some incredible cinema. So um, uh, one film director called Želimir Zielnik, who I will mention as a really special individual, um, he's now maybe in his 70s. Um, <clears throat> and he used to make this quite avant-garde. There was a, quite an avant-garde scene in the Yugoslav uh, film uh, industry. And he used to make a lot of things about um, minorities in this sort of apparently egalitarian socialist country there were still minorities living uh, quite badly um, so he was quite critical of the system anyway he uh, then made a documentary maybe 10 years ago about a woman who was 100 years old she was 99 years old uh, who had had this incredible life of having been a partisan done all these you know very uh, survived many many difficult conditions was a prisoner of war in an italian uh, camp uh, uh, during the war and was then part of the formation of the Yugoslav Republic and uh, then suddenly didn't toe the line uh, when it came to the split with the, with the Soviets and was sent to uh, a political uh, prison camp uh, by Tita and the people that she'd fought with, right? And she tells this whole story of her life. So there were incredible, uh, there are incredible stories out there that you can uh, find out about that go beyond the propaganda as well so um well listening to you talk about this like this film industry and all these films that were made to aggrandize tito and the government like i kind of got a shiver as i thought about the i like had trump prevailed like, <laughs> that was basically the direction we were headed that was there's nothing he would have loved more than to have an entire film industry devoted to aggrandizing his image <laughs> he already had the apprentice i mean exactly I first came to know about yeah i mean it's just you it's can't the other way around it's the complete cartoon i cannot even believe it's real but here we are and you know another thing that your book made me think of and what this conversation is making me think of is you know, not only the way that the the story that you're telling and that the history that you lived is now more resonant in the States than it ever has been in my lifetime, but the fact that there's a, I think, a, a greater global resonance. And I think the reason or one of the reasons for that might be the pandemic and the way that that's had a kind of leveling effect on all of humanity. We're all going through it. Um, certainly mm -hmm. some of us have a harder experience of it than others. Um, but you know, the pandemic, the virus doesn't discriminate. The virus will infect any human being it can get its, you know, get inside of. So, um, I think that that has a leveling effect. I also think that, uh, climate change 
and the, mm. the you know the advancing crisis that we're facing with regard to climate has a leveling effect because it's forcing the issue on us whether we like it or not you know you, you talked about refugees in Croatia and you talked about the environment that we live in now when it comes to being a refugee versus the 90s when you made your transition mm. to England you know we think it's bad now wait until there's two feet of sea level rise in all of these coastal cities in um, particularly in lower income regions get flooded and people have nowhere to go like mm. that's coming especially if we don't get our act together on fossil fuels like the the, mm. hu the human the scale of the human crisis is beyond i think most people's imagination like even if you're even if you're on board and you're facing the facts I think to try to wrap your head around what that's going to look like is a tall order. We've never seen anything like it. And I don't know. I guess, like, is it strange for me to have all those thoughts in the context of your book? Because your book is not a climate change book. Um, but I'm certainly thinking about I'm thinking about the, the, the future that we're facing globally and the kinds of governments that we're going to need and the kinds of, like, international government cooperation that we're going to need hmm. in order to manage what's coming. And I'm not sure if there's a, an existing model for it yet. There's going to need, we're going to need to be very resourceful and we're going to need to have some real human wisdom. And I'm not, you know, some days I'm hopeful. Other days I'm like, Oh, we're fucked. You know, like there's, yeah, I don't know where you fall on that scale. I was just before, um, before our, conversation i was uh, looking at the newspapers and there is ne never a, piece a good of idea never a good idea never a good idea right <laughs> yes i end up ranting for about 10, hours, 10 minutes so uh, i w i read this piece of news where um the spanish what are they uh the sisters of the king or something like this uh got vaccinated abroad so they could go and visit their the you know the king who has self imposed self imposed exile uh, in Abu Dhabi, blah, blah, blah. And I was reading about all these corruption cases of the Spanish royal family. And, you know, you just read the list of the things that they've been, or the, especially the old king has been found guilty of, some embezzlement of some millions and millions and millions of, of euros. And you, and, and you think, and they still live in this massive palace while there are still people sleeping in the street. I think this is our problem as a, as a species, is that, uh, we don't see who's exploiting us, or if we do, we don't seem to be able to plug into being, you know, some kind of true solidarity with with one another, and to understand that we shouldn't be afraid of being poor, and we shouldn't sort of really go up there and, and hope to be, um, you know, powerful and, and rich. I think we have all our sort of, uh, you know, we talked about worshiping, and I think. This is, again, sorry, I'm going all around, but Trump is a real symbol. I mean, he didn't appear out of nowhere. He really came as a complete consequence of everything that's come before him. And he is this almost like a parody of, a, of, of our values in the 21st century, right? He's this sort of gold statue in flip-flops. And unfortunately, he is also uh, a complete embodiment of the deep, um, racism that exists in the world and that racism in the US has one particular 
uh, form, but then across the world it has its forms, and again, in the anti-refugee, anti-migrant uh, attitudes that are spreading. And unfortunately, all this is taking us to a really bad place, but there are good things coming out of it too, in that it's waking a lot of people up to hopefully um, trying to affect some real change. But I think without... Um, Getting to putting our, our forces together, we can't really change a lot. No, I don't know how you feel. Yeah, about that. no, I mean, I feel like the system that the United States has in place currently is that you either have to get super rich or you're fucked. Hmm. Like, that's basically it. You know, like, I want to say, like, a huge swath of our population, something like 60%, I don't have the exact number, but doesn't have $500 in savings. Hmm. But yet we're the richest country in the history of the world and all of the money, like, you know, gold floats. It's all at the top. Mm. And mm. so, you know, what we're told we're the greatest nation in the history of the world. This is, a, you know, something that our leaders love to talk about. They love to kind of thump their chests and wave the flag. And there's all this national pride. Uh, and I think people buy into that, not realizing that they're getting fucked over. You know, they can't even mm. make like a they can't even make a living wage working 50 hours a week. Uh, and I think that when you have that kind of system and then you have the, the power, uh, and the sort of preeminence of Americanism to at least to some degree around the world, like that system sort of gets replicated. Capitalism gets replicated and Mm. it makes people miserable. Mm. I don't know what the solution is, but the majority of people, at least the majority of people I know, like, yeah, we're happy. We have families and we love our friends and all that kind of stuff. But um, the, the the pressure that one might feel in that sort of system where I've either got to make it huge or I'm going to be basically living hand to mouth, it doesn't feel sustainable to me. And I think it brings pressures on people that make often make life um, like really stressful and miserable. Like, do you feel that way in Europe? Like, I, I think sometimes I have a fantasy that like, well, Scandinavia has it figured out. There's a lovely tension. <laughs> There's a lovely tension between socialism and capitalism. I think we can find a blend that works where people feel like they're free, and yet you know we're taking care of one another. Like, at some point, we have to discover some kind of equilibrium between the individualist impulse and the impulse toward collective responsibility. And Hmm. I don't know, like these are the kinds of thoughts I have in my head. Like, how do we figure this out? What's the right way to do this and organize ourselves? Yeah, I I don't, I mean, as far as I know, Scandinavian, uh, Scandinavian countries, although they have this egalitarian system, are some of the most racist countries in the world. And uh, so, you know, it's quite a difficult one. And I think, there is, you know, we've got to do both. We've got to try and sort of evolve individually uh, in, in terms of our uh, attitudes towards uh, authority and power. So, you know, again, what we kind of said earlier about how we like to surrender our uh, responsibility, really, that's what we surrender. When we follow another, any kind of leader, we surrender our responsibility to somebody else because it's easier, I think. Um, and the other thing is uh, with that, we need to uh, work together with that responsibility to then make sure that everyone has enough. And, you know, it's it's very funny that, like, now it's become possible to talk about this again. But I remember, you know, especially in the early 2000s or the noughties, as they call them in England, um, to even talk about any kind of social justice was so 
unfashionable. You know, people sort of just go, ridiculous, you know. (laughs) There was this sort of huge boom going, everybody was buying houses. It just didn't seem necessary to a lot of sort of middle class people. Uh, But as you say, like, you know, the impending climate change, the turn to the right is bringing some things home uh, for even the more privileged. I wouldn't say the most privileged. Um, And I and with the president shop, again, like I was I was trying to see whether there was a real. So, you know, this belief in a in a state that um, provides for all can be a good thing because it means that people unite behind um, a common project without which we can't do anything. Right. Uh, You know, people have become a lot more uh, powerless since they can't unite between behind uh, labor laws, for example, you know, trades unions, all these things that used to give people better working conditions have been completely dismantled. Uh, look at Amazon, right? They can't even they unionize. I mean, it's like they just get fired immediately. Um, so this is one thing that we have lost in the process of the sort of capitalist neoliberal sort of 40 years that we've just come out of and, and lost it in europe too like i don't know what's on like the conditions on the ground there as well as i yeah should, yeah it... largely largely it's been lost here as well sure yeah yeah i think uh our ideas of what's possible have changed so much over the last 40 years we we have been quite brainwashed i think to to think that we can't even have any of those rights anymore, you know. I mean, I was recently reading a book about, like, workers in medieval times in Europe, seriously, like they had much better conditions at some point than what you might find in in uh, Like in an, Am- an Amazon warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, this is, yeah, like Jeff Bezos to me, uh, like, I have a special antipathy for somebody that wealthy whose employees are like making us like a poverty wage and who are like, yeah. they have to like pee in a bag because they can't yeah. have bathroom breaks. And it's like, what is yeah. this guy doing? Like he could be a hero. It would be no sweat to him. He would, he would still be ludicrously rich and he could be mm. a hero to all of his workers. If he just paid them all 40 bucks an hour and was like, Hey, we're doing well. Let's mm. good job. Thanks for making me. A, thanks for making me a Titan of industry, but he won't do it. Mm-hmm. No, he won't do it. And I think, uh, you know, it's how you get uh, that rich, really. Yeah. Is, <laughs> right. By not paying people very well. Um, yeah, so in a way, it's sort of, it's a really interesting question that I don't know whether we're ever going to get find an answer to, but how do we form uh, commun- or societies that can provide for us and in which we are responsible for one another? I mean, this is really what we are avoiding, Right. Uh, you know, any you know, you go out into any um, city street, and there are homeless people, sort of rough, uh, sleeping rough, and then you know, you have these hugely wealthy. You know, I was in the, I was in Miami last year, just before the pandemic was announced, uh, or as it was announced, in fact, and you know, some of the some of the inequality there is. That's, to me, it was absolutely. I was so shocked, you know. Uh, to see one neighborhood next to another with, you know, super wealthy and super poor and uh, and to think that we are able to exist like this. And people don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, you should come to Los Angeles sometime. I mean, it's exactly that. And, uh, yeah. you know, just like people sleeping in the streets and then people driving by in their Teslas and their whatever, you know. And it, you, there's something about that um, 
like seeing that uh, day in and day out that it has an effect on you. <laughs> Let's put it that way, mm. you know, like yeah. it, you just go, God, we're such a mess. And I, you know, you think to the, about the future and the problems that humanity is facing and, you know, we're in an, in a situation now where our very survival as a species is up in the air, which is new. Mm. And it makes me think like, we're going to have to get creative and as you said earlier about people being brainwashed and sort of uh, oblivious to their own power, you know, to you sort of check your yeah. you sort of check your brain at the door and assume somebody's taking care of these things, as opposed to engaging and taking some responsibility uh, personally. And what I was thinking lately is like, you know, why, why do we have in most Western democratic countries? Why do we have these leader figures? Like, do we need a president? Like, why don't we have a council of elders or like some sort of like, why don't we organize ourselves like, uh, you know, where we uh, value our elders as opposed to like mm. living in these youth obsessed cultures. And, you know, absolutely, and we, absolutely. and we create like a group, I guess Congress is supposed to be this, you know, in America, our Senate and our house, you know, where the group mind makes decisions, but I guess I just was calling into question in my own head. Like, I just accept it at face value. Like, of course, there's a president. And, you know, I, I don't know what it's like uh, in Spain, but we fetishize the presidency in the United States. It's in... Not so much here, but yeah, of course, it has its privileges. I mean, one of the ways, and I was, in fact, just ranting on about this after the reading about the monarchy, is um, why do we have anybody in power for more than six months? You know, if... If there was a rotation of power, permanent rotation, where nobody could get power happy, um, we could, <laughs> we could. Um, I'm sure things would be quite different if there wasn't such a status attached to being uh, powerful in that way. Um, a lot less. Um, I think there'd be a lot less corruption. I mean, obviously, probably there would still be some, but. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there would be if people were just simply responsible for our roles in that and to, you know, to understand what our impact is when we make certain decisions, um, we wouldn't give up our, our responsibility uh, so easily. And I think one of the real something I've thought about a lot is why do we do this? Why do we fetishize power and, and wealth so much is really because we're afraid of 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 poverty and destitution and for a good reason i'm not i'm not saying <laughs> like oh but you know the problem is that uh the more we're afraid of those people who sleep in the streets um the less empathy we have towards them and the more we drive this thing of accumulating of getting more and it's it's a you know i don't know i think it's probably an age-old issue but uh there is certainly enough stuff in the world for everybody to i think have what they need yeah no doubt it's just you got to get people who have accumulated exorbitant amounts to part ways with a good chunk of it and that's where things yeah that's where things get difficult <laughs> it's yes. trying to we could also not not fund the military in the same way we could not fund war uh there's plenty of money in every country that could go into the things that we really need um but somehow, just our, our systems are, are made really to um, to work away from from uh, our own power. Okay, so as somebody who has the set of life experiences that you do, 
you know, you grew up in a communist country, you were educated at least in secondary school in a capitalist country, you've lived a mostly Western European adult life, right? That's the way you would characterize yeah. it. Like, yeah. How do you identify or do you identify yourself politically? Like, are you like, you know what, I'm a, like, what do you believe in? I'm a socialist, I'm a Marxist, I'm a, I'm a, I believe in, I'm a humanist. You know what I'm saying? Do you have a, an ism that you subscribe to or are you more like me where I'm just like trying to feel my way through and I'm sort of like, I always feel hesitancy when it comes to joining clubs or like plant, yeah. planting a flag in the ground. And yet I always sort of want somebody to tell me <laughs> like, what's the answer? Um, like, how do you, like, how do you make sense? Do you have a, a way of defining yourself in that way? Um, this is, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a bit like you in that I don't necessarily want to put any labels on my, on my, uh, feeling and thinking about politics. Uh, I would certainly say I'm, I'm left of center <laughs> for sure. Yeah, me too. Um, I have a lot of sympathy. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy towards, uh, you know, socialism as a as a as an idea, and certainly as a sort of set of uh, political ideas in terms of free education, free health, all those things that I have experienced the benefits of in the UK as well. You know, where you have a national health system and free education. So yeah, um, I have a lot of uh, interest and uh, um, real sympathy towards. Um, like anarchism in the way that Noam Chomsky writes about it. So uh, these uh, social structures, uh, you know, in terms of this like rotating power, how power is actually uh, directed in this um, anarchist system is really, really interesting. And I think quite, quite smart and helpful um, uh, in a practical way if, if it was ever implemented. There are some anarchist schools in which the, the children and teachers are supposed to be on the same level. I quite like this anti-hierarchical um, ideas, right? Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there. You know, it's funny. You're making me remember I, an interview I did years and years ago with Dennis Cooper, who <laughs> I think is an anarchist. I mean, this was almost a decade ago, but he was. I remember talking with him about it, and you know, like I got to be honest, I haven't done a ton of reading about anarchism, but I think that the average American, anyway. When you're like, hey, I'm an anarchist, they immediately think you're going to like tip their car over and throw like a rock through their window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, which, but what you're talking about is like less of hierarchical structuring to society and to the systems, you know, political and otherwise within that society. Yeah, as a sort of uh, a, a real political and almost philosophical uh, idea. And, it, you know, it happened. Um, so, um, there was a lot of writing done about um, the Spanish Civil War, and there was a, um, a sort of anarchist uh, whole movement, and uh, entire villages and towns were like that were organizing in this way. And it's it's actually a very organized system. So I think what happened to anarchists, maybe it was like co-opted by the punks in the 70s who were just like fighting each other or something. I'm not sure where it got this terrible name. But because it's sort of anti authoritarian in this way that there is a kind of uh, you know certain group of people that hold the power I think of course it was a very very uh, challenging idea both to the uh, you know to the left and to the right which depend on these systems um, that are so entrenched and that we know so well so yeah 
I, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I have had these discussions with people where I was like tried to say it's you know it's really interesting. You should read about it um, before just completely dismissing it. Um, so yeah. Well, that's why I like reading Noam, like somebody like Noam Chomsky because he always forces me out of my comfort zone. Like you know, makes me question what I think I know, and um, you know, often makes like really like. <laughs> like kind of just like obliterating arguments. Like he can, he can take apart like a a prevailing notion and just, just completely dismantle it for you. And then you're left uh, to sort of make sense of uh, like how to, how to operate in the absence of it or, you know what I'm saying? And I think, I think that when it comes to the future and it comes to how human beings behave and organize themselves, this is exactly the kind of creative thinking that it's going to take. Like we're going to have to be willing to try things uh, we're going to have mm. to be we're going to have to be willing to think about things that we haven't thought about before and to consider the possibility that we're doing it wrong, which is often really painful, you know, I think for people yeah. to go through. But um, seeing as, you know, you're kind of a, you're a, a more global citizen than I, having lived in uh, different countries and cultures. Do you have a favorite? Is there one that you feel like is most functional or more functional than the others? And then uh, like, you know. Some, uh, along the same line of thinking, like, have you traveled to other countries, like just as a, on vacation or as a visitor? And is there a country that you've been to that has impressed you the most? Hmm. Uh, so I spent about 20 years writing Lonely Planet Travel Guides. Oh. So I traveled a lot uh, and spent time in places. In terms of social structures, I'm not sure that I have been to places that have been so different. Uh, where is it that's so different now? I mean, actually, I was in China last year, no, two years ago, and I found that really interesting. Uh, obviously, I have no idea what, what it means to be a Chinese person living in China, and I met several Chinese people who uh, seemed perfectly happy with their lives. Um, so I can't sort of go into that whole thing about whether living in China is one way or another. But from what I could see as a visitor is that there was a very nice uh, sense of sort of communal life, Um, even though I was in Shanghai and it's a hugely kind of consumerist city with these huge shopping malls and whatever. There's still a lot of... um, uh, people with older people especially would go out in the parks and uh, and get their speakers out and dance and uh, they seemed to be able to socialize away from consuming they were just sort of enjoying themselves and um, so that was something that I really really enjoyed there was a sort of calm I felt there but you know it's very difficult to to judge a place by going there for a month or you know I mean I spend a bit more time than you might do on holidays but um, it's very hard to know these things uh, you know I used to come to Spain a lot before uh, spending any significant time here and I thought I knew what the life was like here but I actually didn't really and I learned a lot more since I've spent uh, more consistent amount of time here yeah it's really easy for me to sort of uh, fantasize like I have big New Zealand fantasies like a lot of people like New Zealand <laughs> it's the place it's we've just seen the yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've kind of figured out they've got this like great like female prime minister or whatever and she seems like really humane and bright and yeah. you know they seem to be functioning and then I can sometimes be like Japan everyone's so fucking polite and everything's clean and 
you know, <laughs> but then there's a lot of pressure. I feel like to you know, there's like this really intense, like, you know, pressure for kids to get into school and pass that test. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I go yeah. back and forth, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm forever wanting to find the place. Like you talk about like people wanting some sort of guru or political leader figure to just sort of show them the way. I'm always just like, where's the place? Just tell me the place. I'll go there. <laughs> you know, one thing I really love is like being in places where they're, where that are really like mixed. And, um, so London is an amazing place for that, but of course it's a very hard city. Um, to survive in in terms of like money and you know it's not it's not a, a light uh city by any means and then you know i was in uh in florida last last year as i was saying in miami and and then again that sort of blend of people i really love that that to me is there's huge potential in that if if uh if, if it can be harnessed properly um, well, so there's hope for I, there's hope for America then because we've got to be you know, like Los Angeles. There is, you know, and I was there just as Bernie Sanders was sort of still uh, in the race, and I was with um, some young women who were like campaigning for Bernie. And they were all like super sort of mixed backgrounds, and and it just felt fantastic. And I thought, you know, I just spent time, in fact, researching at Lonely Planet Guide in North Florida, which was all like Trump land. <laughs> super weird i came back freaked out thinking oh my god these people are gonna vote and it's just the end of the world is coming and then and then i i was invited to a few of these uh, campaign nights uh, for bernie sanders and suddenly it was like oh this is brilliant so that's what i mean i think every, wherever you go you know there's there's good stuff and bad stuff of course uh structurally it would be great if the world could just get it tanked together maybe maybe the answer is like be like finland without the racism is that the answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think the the finnish seem to have a, a decent a decent um, system certainly when it comes to education you really read a lot of uh, good interesting stuff yeah and i should say too like i all of my um idealizing uh, i mean i've been to sweden uh, but I have not been to Norway or Finland. So it's much easier, I think, in some ways. And I went to New Zealand a long, long time ago. So it's easier to idealize places when they live in your imagination. Mm. <laughs> like, once you once you <laughs> actually go there, you're like, oh, well, there goes that dream. <laughs> well, exactly. This is it. <laughs> uh, Maybe just keep it as a fantasy and then work locally. That's right. That's right. That's right. I can just be like, well, if I were in New Zealand right now, everything would be would be better. But I'm here on the ground trying to right yes. all of the wrongs of American society in Los Angeles. Um, so I want to ask you briefly before I let you go, because you just mentioned it about writing for Lonely Planet, because I think mm -hmm. like I love to travel. It's like, you know, I wish I could do more of it. I've got young children, so it makes it harder. Um, but it's just one of my favorite things to do. I think it's maybe the best way to get educated on earth. Uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't think anything you can do in a in a classroom compares to um the intensity of travel and how quickly you learn and at high volume and so i think it's like there are people out there like being a travel writer sounds awesome it's like wow that'd be so fun just travel and write about it and i'm sure that the the lived reality of being a lonely planet writer is maybe not like like everything it's not maybe as good as the dream like what is it like to actually do that kind of work it's definitely not as glamorous as people seem to 
imagine, um, because you're going on a budget, uh, on a publishing budget. So, you know, you and you're going for a month or two, sometimes depends on how long your research is. So you, you've got to spend your money wisely. Um, and you've got to go to all the places, you know, uh, I was in Greece a couple of years ago, and I had to go around all of the border towns because of course people travel by land so it's very important that there are these uh, cities and towns covered uh, where there are border crossings but there's absolutely nothing to see there (laughs) and nothing to do Uh, so you can kind of get stuck in these places but sometimes they can also be quite charming it's a great job because you are free um, there's no one above you in that way that you don't have an office and so for me it's perfect because I don't want to go to an office I don't want to have a a, a boss in that way I don't have a problem with working from home um, so that like the lockdowns weren't in terms of my working life they were quite similar to how I normally yeah, me too me too I think a lot of writers I like I look around everyone's like I'm so traumatized like I'm you know I've, yeah. I've never been more depressed I'm like this is my every day welcome to my this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm like welcome to my uh, this is just like my status quo this is it nothing's changed yeah. <laughs> exactly yes so in that way it's for me it's the ideal job and i think everyone who does it really uh, really enjoys it because of that freedom but you know like everything else uh, that you do as a freelancer it's unstable now you know i've not had a job for a year um since travel has completely kind of stopped so you know <laughs> the uh, next edition is going to be called like the really lonely planet just incredible <laughs> Homeless. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, I've I've loved talking with you. I enjoyed your book, um, you know, and congratulations on it. I want to read Bluebird and kind of get the full scoop so that I can, you know, I feel like I will have, um, I don't know. I feel like these books really are a reflection of who you are and where you're from and all that you've been through. And so I'm eager to read the other one so I can have like the full experience. And I got to ask, are you working mm-hmm. on another book? Is there another chapter or another, like, is there another part of your saga that you have not covered in literature yet? <laughs> I am working on a, on another book, um, which is um, about returning to Bosnia. Ah. So um, I'm kind of a little bit of where, where we're at in terms of it's, a, I, I, I think it's, it's nonfiction. It'll be, um, and it's about the yeah. it's about the period where you went back in like twenty twelve through twenty whatever. Um, yeah, it's about that period of being back there and just sort of the whole different uh, time of my life and of what it means to be a post war country thirty years later, kind of thing. You know, yeah. still to be a post war country, but also kind of uh, um, you know how it made me understand. Uh, what it means to assimilate to uh, your, how can I call it, adoptive culture and how much you lose of your original culture and what that means in terms of your, uh, let's call it identity, cultural identity, uh, how much you can read uh, different codes, social codes, all those things that I found myself completely uh, not having realize the effects of, of uh, what it means to assimilate so yeah um, it's it's a, it's interesting to hear you say that because I was just thinking about this I want to say last night like one of the things I've joked about myself through the years uh, is that I'm an incredibly adaptive uh, person when it comes to fashion 
like wherever I am, I will dress like the median white dude. <laughs> I guess that would be the way to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I'm like everyone in Los Angeles wears a hoodie. So I'm like wearing a hoodie. I don't want to, I don't like to stand out based on what I wear. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I don't want to be walking through the airport in like a pink trench coat and everyone's going, Whoa, like this guy's making a statement. I don't like when there's eyes on me. Like I just want to blend. Really? I like to blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I guess like the point that I'm wanting to make is that I, I thought it was just kind of like a personal preference, but it's actually like widely, it's biology. Like humans are adaptive and adaptive species. And we go into some sort of new human grouping, whether it's a nation or a city or a region or whatever it is, that's normal. Like you're going to, you know, Mm. unless I guess you're somebody who really wants to set themselves apart somehow, but most people adapt. You wind up picking up whether you even know it or not. It can be unconscious. Um, and suddenly you start imitating the people around you. Well, we need to stand out when we're trying to seduce, of course. This is where we need to oh. stand out. But when we need Is that to my survive, problem? Is... <laughs> I think both both are useful at different times, yeah. right? When we need to survive, we probably need to adapt and blend in a lot more. Um, but there are different times in our lives when it's important to do. Um, you know, when it's threatening to stand out, then you, you want to. You want to blend I in, think I, I think, think I always uh, feel that it's threatening to stand up. <laughs> That's my default mode. Just I'm not even here. Just don't notice me, please. I'm barely even here. <laughs> That's why I hide in my garage and do podcasts all day. It's perfect for me. Oh, is that your garage? Yeah. Very fancy. Well, yeah, I mean, bookshelves and everything. Yeah, I mean, this is like, uh, it's kind of like we made it into a living space um, so that ah, we can okay. like watch, you know, watch movies in here, but. Um, yeah, I used to have a proper garage with like a wasp's nest and, um, there was asbestos and it was dark and there was like a single light bulb that was at my old house. So, you know, we've, uh, we've got a nicer garage now, but it it, it works better for podcasting. I used to have people come over, um, including like, you know, I had some people come over who they're like these authors who like would have a driver, you know, because they're on book tour Mm -hmm. and. They would come mm-hmm. to they would come to my house for the show. We'd go to my garage, and they would just be looking at me like, "Am I going to get murdered?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, "Hey, like this is the only place." Because my kids were even younger then. I'm like, "It's either that, or we're going to have screaming children like interrupting us." So, um, you've gotten this is a nicer, more civil experience. Is the point? <laughs> that sounds good. Yes. Well, I, uh, do you have a name for the new book so we can look out for it or is it still early? It's still early. I'm still finishing it. Let's say I've written about two thirds of it. Oh. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye out. It's great to meet you and, uh, congratulations on the president shop. Thank you. It was really lovely to talk to you and thank you for inviting me. All right, everybody, there you have it. That is Vesna Marich, and her debut novel is called The President Shop. It's available now from Sandorf Passage. If you want to get more information on the book or buy yourself a copy, check out sandorfpassage.org. You can find Vesna Marich on Instagram. Her handle there is Vesna Marks. Marks with an X at the end. Once again, the novel is called The President Shop. Go get your copy immediately. It just dropped. Yesterday, I believe. The Other People podcast is offered freely. 
almost 700 episodes, all available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you would like to tip your server, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month. It helps. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. That, too, is free. It's a great way to, uh, to uh, listen to the show. If you want to get the app, go get the app. It's free. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you need to say, get off your chest. If you want to tell me a story, give me feedback, whatever it happens to be, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, sweatshirt, uh, tank top, you can get a onesie for your baby. You can do that by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. It's good. It's good apparel. It's soft. It's snuggly. It feels good to wear. It's good. Trust me. I like t-shirts. These are good t-shirts. Next week on the program, Yaman Manai is my guest. He is the author of a novel in translation. It is called The Ardent Swarm. Great time meeting him. That's coming up next week. I'll see you then. Uh, I won't see you, but you know what I mean. But, you know, I'll talk to you. And uh, Yaman Manai will be my guest. The Ardent Swarm is a TNB Book Club pick. All right. <laughs>